0: you're listening to That'll Preach, this is Brian, and we've got another interview lined up for you guys today on a topic I think you guys are going to find very, very interesting. And uh, we have with us today Dr. Scott Redd. Uh, Dr. Scott Redd, he is the president and Stephen B. Elmer, professor of Old Testament at RTS Orlando, and or, I'm sorry, RTS Orlando. Washington, D.C. He's in the Washington, D.C. campus. Yeah. But he is an Orlando dad. grad. You're I, an Orlando or grad.
1: Yeah, and I used to, t- I taught down there and I was dean of students down there until 2012. So, no way. Orlando connections. Yeah.
0: Well, I had a great time in Orlando. I did the hybrid program at least, but uh sounds like you, uh you live in the dream. You started off in Orlando. Now you're the president of your own uh, <laughs> campus. That's the, uh, a rags to riches story, if I've ever heard one,
1: right? Well, I I don't know. Orlando may take exception being called the rags part of the story. <laughs> but no, yeah, it was – I mean, I was down at RTS Orlando at a great time between 2000 and 2004 and uh, back in the days of Bruce Walkie and Richard Pratt and Reggie Kidd and all kinds of professors down there that were so influential in my life. And actually, because of their influence, ended up going into biblical studies myself. And it was a, it was a great – Great launching pad and a solid foundation for uh, for academic study down the road. So I'm thrilled that I get to be a part of the organization now. Were you what, planning on getting your doctorate when you were
0: uh, after seminary?
1: No, yeah, it's a good time. question. Yeah, no, I went down um, really with plans to become a pastor. Um, I had talked to, uh, I was doing public relations up in RTS excuse me, up in Washington, D.C., and just kept getting drawn back to the study of theology and started talking to some friends and my pastor up here and went down to Orlando planning to get an MDiv and then go into the pastoral ministry. And it was while I was there that I got interested in Old Testament studies and thought, well, okay, I'll get a PhD, but then I'm going to still go in and be a pastor. And I knew a couple of pastors with PhDs, and I thought that's just another way of doing that job. Right, and just having maybe a little bit deeper well in a particular area to draw from, and did that for a while. Actually, worked at a couple of different churches, um, and uh, while I was working while you're PhD, pursuing your PhD, yeah, and after, and thought this is what I'm going to do. And then RTS came calling and said, "Hey, listen, we need somebody to teach Old Testament down in Orlando," and it was a it was just at the right time for us, and so we went down there into that community. And just was really warmly received into it, and honestly, I've been in the seminary since. Though I, I've always felt, you know, I'm ordained in my presby in my denomination, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, and I've always felt that you know, at some point down the road, I might end up back in the church again. So I don't, I don't see that as a totally different call from the one that I'm doing here at the seminary. It seems like you did have the scholar
0: life, and you were in pastoral ministry, at least you were working in a ministerial setting. And those two things, do you feel like they dovetailed in a helpful way?
1: Yep, absolutely. And I, I mean, in, in, a, in a whole lot of different ways when I was doing my PhD, as a matter of fact, my uh, my discipline was a very technical one. So it, yeah. was, it was called Semitic Language and Literature up here at Catholic University. And then on Sundays, one of the ways I was kind of paying the bills is I was teaching in our high school and junior high programs at our church and writing a curriculum for them. So I was writing two classes a week for junior high and high schoolers, you know, so you'd spend the week studying Ugaritic and Targumic Aramaic and reading Qumran, you know, manuscripts, <laughs> and you'd spend the weekend trying to teach the Bible to junior hires. And I honestly think that kind of the sort of vertigo that's created in between those two different ways of approaching Scripture was excellent at forming um, kind of a pastoral. Uh, having a pastoral perspective on the academic work that you're doing because every Sunday you had to bring it back down to earth and talk to kids about it and keep their interest. So yeah. I loved it. I, I, I've i never looked back. I've always appreciated that, that period in life. And I still love doing it. I still get to teach our, in our Sunday schools at our church now. So I really enjoy it. Well,
0: there. middle schoolers and high schoolers, if they're not interested, they'll let you know. So oh, I man, guess that...
1: <laughs> they'll fall asleep in class, like right in front yeah. of your face. They don't care. They'll roll their eyes. <laughs> They'll, they'll flubber their lips. <laughs> you know. It's a good training ground, though, right? Oh, it's, it's perfect. You, gotta, you can you keep get them immediate... engaged. Well, you know, the, the, the dirty little secret I tell people is that, you know, the best thing about teaching high schoolers is that, yeah, they give you immediate feedback. So adults are polite enough that they act like they're listening, you know, even if they're <laughs> totally spaced out. Yeah. But high schoolers, junior hires don't. But you like to think that, and adults like to think that when you go from high school to the adult ed, that you're really upping your game. But you're really not. Adults have just as short time sp- you know, of, of you know attention spans yeah. as high schoolers. So if you can keep an, a, a high schooler's attention, then you can teach adults. It doesn't necessarily go the other way around, though. You know. So I'd say try to get out there. If you get an opportunity to teach junior hires and high schoolers, that's one of the best ways to cut your teeth on learning how to teach. Well, you know, it's I, I can I can sense a
0: lot of your experience in ministering with people from. The article that uh, I wanted to have you on here to talk about because I think it really touched on the experience of a lot of people and especially I think guys who are interested in ministry and and their experience going through some of the the phases that you outline uh, in this article and uh, the article I'm talking about you actually wrote in 2016 and uh, before we started recording I was joking about how you know we're not a very hit podcast we don't we just find old stuff and that we like and even if it's outdated, but uh, it's, it's an article that, uh, that says uh, the title is three modes of Christian formation, experience, doctrine, and liturgy. Mm -hmm. And you kind of talk about how people in a general sense move from experience, like an experience orientation to doctrinal mindedness, to a, a sensibility that really resonates with liturgy. And then it, it kind of goes back around. Um, that's that's a brief explanation, but maybe just open up. What inspired you to start writing about this? What inspired this article about how we kind of move from these different phases in our Christian life?
1: Yeah, thanks for that's a great question, and um, I love talking about this article. Like you said, I wrote it six years ago, and it does seem like every couple of months somebody reaches out and says, "Hey, you know, I stumbled across this article on your blog." <laughs> and you know, I'd love to talk more about it. Um, I have to give a little bit of a disclaimer on the front end. This this article does is not sociology. You know, to, to paraphrase the prophet Hosea, um, excuse me, Amos. You know, it's not sociology, and it's not the son of sociology. This is not. There's no <laughs> database or uh, or survey behind this analysis. This is strictly coming out of sort of my own autobiographical story in a lot of conversations with friends it's very anecdotal um, and yet I kind of noticed this this pattern happening over and over again and particularly working at a seminary we've got students coming in at different places in their spiritual walk and you see the things that they're appreciating um, you go to different churches and you see the things that they're emphasizing at these churches and I kind of know I, I noticed this, sort of typical rule of thumb, which was that there seemed to be kind of a, a progressive um, developmental thing that was going on between these sort of three different modes is what I call them here. You could call them phases, you could call them modes. I think there were phases in an earlier version of this article, which are the, yeah, the experiential one, the the doctrinal mode and the liturgical mode, okay? And, you know, I I say for each one of them, they all have a predominant virtue. Each one of these modes has a predominant virtue, a realm of meaning, and an objective or a goal. And, you know, so for the experiential mode, it's about your personal experience. The key virtue is one of spontaneity. In other words, it kind of happens. It's not planned. It's spontaneous. It's uh, therefore kind of considered more authentic. Um, the realm of that's the key virtue of the experiential mode the realm of meaning of the experiential mode is feeling and the objective is ecstasy or having some kind of ecstatic experience whether that's relief through conversion or charismatic experience or something like that you know the doctrinal mode is then the next phase and your key virtue there is organization and the system the realm of meaning is logic and syllogism and the objective is clarity and certainty, you know, having a clear sense of what the content of belief is. So that's the doctrinal mode. And then you come to the liturgical mode, which is the third one. And, you know, the predominant virtue there is heritage, you know, being rooted in some kind of past tradition. Um, the realm of, you know, so you have this kind of historical uh, rootedness, this historical. Um, Uh, you know, a recognition of being a part of a a trans-temporal, trans-chronological community. You know, the realm of meaning is participation and performance. So it's actually doing things together. And the objective of it is this sense of belonging, being a part of community. Okay. And, And what I noticed was that people who had had an experiential or had been a part of a community that was heavily experiential often moved from that to a doctrinal phase of some kind, okay? So the most maybe obvious way that that happens is that someone is in maybe a revivalist congregation, okay, where you have a strong emphasis on experience, decision, conversion stories, that kind of thing. Um, There's a typical movement that happens as the Christian matures where at some point, and maybe it's because they recognize uh, maybe the shallowness of some of the experiences that they're he- hearing about, or they recognize kind of the decisionalism or decisionalism that goes into that. There's this draw towards doctrine and actually getting rooted in teaching. Okay, and people who are in that doctrinal mode where there's high doctrine, there's often a movement from that, not necessarily to experience, okay, but usually to something more liturgical. You know, you you start moving from uh, a doctrinally you know, deep and advanced community into one that's a more liturgical community, and I just noticed that that movement from experience to doctrine to liturgy seemed to be pretty common. Uh, the most stereotypical way you could argue that is the person who comes becomes a Christian as a Baptist, right? They grow up and become a Presbyterian, right? As their dot, you know, as they're kind of they realize the need for doctrine or something like that. This is totally cliche. Don't you know? Don't don't take me to task on this, you know, and then after being a Presbyterian for 20 years, they discover the Anglican tradition and they want to now be a part of the clergy.
0: I was literally going to say that. We joke about this, like even in Tallahassee, it's like you get saved in a charismatic church or a Baptist church, and then you become a Calvinist. And so you become a Presbyterian and then you die an Anglican, you know, they bury you right outside. Yeah, right.
1: Exactly. And, you know, and it's, what's interesting is that it doesn't have to be a denominational shift either. Sometimes you'll just move from a more experiential, Presbyterian Church to a more doctrinal one yeah. to a more liturgical one okay right. right now lest the liturgical folks say yes that's right we are the most mature of all of <laughs> right this yeah. is what I kind of notice is that there's a circular motion to this if uh-huh. you're raised in a liturgical congregation usually your next step is back to experiential you know the the common experience that you see in the states in the United States at least is this movement from nominal Episcopalianism or nominal Catholic
0: traditions right. into
1: yeah. what? A more revivalist, charismatic right. experience. They go to youth camp, they yeah. go to
0: a conference, yeah.
1: You usually don't go from like hard Catholic you know, or, or nominal Catholic to doctrinaire Presbyterian. There's gonna be some kind of awakening. There's some, mm-hmm. some kind of experiential thing that happens in between those two phases. Yeah. Okay. Like I said, this is all impressionistic. I think it's very
0: true, at least for a certain subset of evangelical culture. This is very true. Doesn't (laughs)
1: this strike you as something that's true? I I, I feel like I keep seeing this played out over and over again in our students and the churches around us and everything. You know, there's this kind of general circular motion here. Doctrine goes to liturgy. Liturgy goes to experience. Experience goes to doctrine. And um, I mean, there's some historical places where this is corroborated. Um, I think I mentioned in this, maybe in the footnotes. Of this article, there's only a couple of little endnotes at the bottom, um, but a, an old article is from 1985 in this book called "Reformed Theology in America," where hmm. Marsden has the intro, and he lays out these three categories that he calls you know for reformed people in the United States. He calls them the Pietist, doctrinalist, and culturalist. You know, and I think there's hmm. this isn't the same; these aren't the same three categories, and yet. Um, there's a lot of overlap, I think, with what he's talking about there in terms of like the three different expressions of Reformed Christianity in the United States today. So this was uh, personally, I was like,
0: yeah, I think I became a Christian in college through the Navigators campus ministry. And uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And so it was uh, I don't know that I had as much of a dramatic experiential kind of thing. Maybe that's just not my temperament. But it certainly was this sense of uh, freshness, and and it, it was a it, it was powerful in its own way. And then I definitely start. I go online and I'm like, "Who's John Piper? Who's R. C. Sproul? Yeah. Who are all these guys?" And then you start reading them, and you're like, "Wow, you can actually systematize a lot of these things." And then now maybe I'm in more of the you know I'm like, "Man, I kind of like liturgy. I kind of like the order," <laughs> you know, and. So I, I I feel like maybe I'm I'm in the overlap of the uh, the already but not yet a little bit I'm, yeah. I'm like phasing out of doctrine entering into liturgy and then maybe that <laughs> leads to experience ten years down the line or something like that but I this was I think I read this and I'm like I could read myself into this a little bit
1: yeah and you know another way of saying it I mean I, it's, um, thanks for telling me your story my mind was similar I came in through so here's here's how it's, this also shows you how it's not necessarily denominational. I came in through, I, I had my spiritual awakening as a mm-hmm. thinking human. I mean, I was a that was a covenant kid. I was raised by Christian parents. Um, but I, it kind of became my own in, in a charismatic. But Anglican, interestingly, is a charismatic Episcopalian mm-hmm. church. And that was heavily influential in my family's life and in my life. And it was when I hit college that I, I discovered doctrine. But... At that point in my life, there was very little interest in liturgy. I thought that that stuff was just not important at all. Right? Yeah. Uh, I had a long, you know, decades-long interest in doctrine, still am to this day. And yet it was about 10, 15 years later that I was in a church that was a very Presbyterian service. So here's the, it's not liturgical in the Anglican sense, but it was a very ordered Presbyterian service up here in, in, in Washington, D.C., um, at Fourth Presbyterian Church, and it didn't at first fit with me experientially. So my experiential taste buds were saying, what's going on? You don't like this kind of music, you know? Yeah. And my doctrinal self was like, yeah, so these are good sermons. That's good. The content's good, but but I don't know what I think about this worship style. And there was a maturing that happened as I was worshiping hmm. there. And not only did I first kind of begin to tolerate the worship I then began to love it and then I began to kind of long for it right and that was a that was a kind of liturgy it was and it wasn't just because it was worship it was the way that my community worshiped together right and it, it was this liturgical mode that's not highly Anglican or or you know orthodox but it is still rooted in this tradition of liturgical worship that is uh you know Presbyterian style and it was there is that kind of at that point i realized okay wait a minute there's something going on here because i've i've heard this i've kind of heard this story before from my friends and from yeah. other people and it got me thinking that way but another way of, of talking about it really is to say you know a, a, a strictly liturgical worship without experience and doctrine is empty it's nominalism right you know experience without doctrine and liturgy is just kind of you know lone ranger christianity it's just me chasing after the next experience, right? Novelty gives way to ecstasy. That's all I'm looking for, is something new, some new experience, mm-hmm. which is kind of maybe the Western predicament that we're all just looking for new experiences all the time. <laughs> you know, and then and then in doctrine without experience and liturgy is just sort of mind games, right? It's just logical mind games of trying to link doctrines and propositions together logically, but it's not actually undergirded by true faith or belonging to a community, you know, to the body of Christ. So I think there's multiple ways of talking about it um, that, that that sort of help us understand, okay, what's, what's happening to me as I'm growing as a Christian and I'm having these different emphases, you know, experience, doctrine, liturgy.
0: Well, you also talk about how one, you use the category of sequential and it does seem that one, it, the the phase kind of, it phases out a little bit. There's a a, a, a lack of, I, I, like I, when I was reading, I'm like, oh yeah. When you start like experiential, you start thinking, well, maybe what I feel isn't always true. And I need mm-hmm. to know what's true. And then you start thinking about the doctrine. You're like, well, what's true? And then you're like, well, maybe what is true should actually affect the things that I do and how I worship. Right. And then you think, well, what if the way that I worship can actually affect how I feel? And then it, it kind of goes on that on that cycle and i think it, reading this helped me one appreciate other churches mm-hmm. who are different kind of phases of that but also thinking in terms of people like people are dynamic and some people are in different phases and there's almost an organic kind of thing that you know if somebody's in a highly experiential phase you don't want to crush them and be like well doctor doctor doctrine," you know mm-hmm. but understand that maybe they need to just work through this and there's yeah. a pacing that God has them on. And if someone's really doctrinal, you know, you don't want to go too hard on them. You can be like, ease. And then if someone's really liturgical, you know, I, I think it, it helps you have a little bit of patience and understanding that people are in different places.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I know. I think that, that's good. And you want – it can help you not only recognize that, hey, okay, they're in a different part of this story than me. And it doesn't necessarily mean, too, that they're more or less mature than you because it is, it's a cyclical progression. Right. Um, but recognizing that there's something really beautiful about highly liturgical communities, and yet you never want them to be just that, right? Right. And there's something beautiful about highly doctrinal communities, and yet you don't want to be just that, right? You want to go back and check. Okay, so how are we, how are we, you know, giving expression to this doctrine as a community? And and are we, you know, Paul Paul warns Timothy, you're going to be responsible for your individual you know, your individual experience, right. your individual life. So in other words, you know, is there a real saving faith behind all of this? And yet it also, I think, keeps you away from kind of picking a team and just sticking to that team no matter what, because you really do want to be able, you want to be growing, you want to be having a full, uh, a, a, you know, full experience, as it were, um, uh, of of the gospel life, not just in your personal experience, but in the content of your belief and the way in which you participate in the believing community.
0: What do you think is the, the how would you describe the transition from the liturgical to the experiential? Maybe personally or how you see it in students because I think I think most people who go to seminary understand the experiential to doctrinal. And that's maybe that's a lot of times the feeling. Yeah. And then you can kind of see doctrinal to liturgical kind of like you were saying you you would go to a service that was a presbyterian service with a presbyterian liturgy and it was kind of a a acquired taste but over time it, it formed you and you realized how effective it was yeah but i'm curious about your thoughts of liturgical to experiential what is that like what um in what ways does that transition happen
1: Yeah, I mean, my, you know, my wife was raised in a Catholic um, context, and I think she would say she herself had not, we had a personal experience of the gospel, but she was raised in a very liturgical context, and many of her family would kind of report that same experience. And it was when she went to college through a network of relationships and friends, you know, she had all the answers. She'd been catechized, you know, she Mm -hmm. knew. She knew who Jesus was, and she knew what the gospel was, and yet it became suddenly real for her this thing that she knew before. And I, I think for a lot of people um, coming out of these liturgical settings, there's a there's a, a respect in the United States, at least, for a kind of religiosity, and there's an expected sort of liturgical, like, you know, liturgical experience to have when you go to church, and yet there's something offensive to many of those people about the personal experience. In other words, they don't want it to be too personal. You, you, they, they maybe look down their nose at people who claim to be born again, right? Born again. What's that? That's, that's really experiential, right? That, that kind of language being born again is revivalistic and experiential. So I think what happens is when that, when, when you've been raised in a liturgical environment, where, whatever that is, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Anglican, Maybe it's, maybe it's your, the, the liturgy of going through the motions at your Baptist church or your Presbyterian church, right? And then suddenly that content that you had been acting out um, by participating in worship suddenly becomes real to you. And then you have this experience. Usually the, the point of the progression is that usually someone who's in that nominal liturgical experience is not going to get really interested in doctrine. Like, why are you going to spend all your time studying right. doctrine, if you haven't had this personal experience that sort of opens your eyes to the emotional, the spontaneous, the reality of your faith, you know? And so that's, that's what I mean by that, is, is that you usually have, um, when you talk to people um, in charismatic movements, you've talked to people in revivalist movements, you'll often find out that they're coming from very religious backgrounds It's just a kind of empty liturgical background that they're coming from it's not it's not a doctrinal background right it's not a, it's not another experiential background either
0: right what about for the guy who goes through it all he you know he's uh, he goes to seminary doctrine he gets interested in liturgy but because you're talking kind of like if you grew up in a liturgical setting, and then something's awakened. Mm-hmm. But what if you already went through the first cycle? You got saved in an experiential thing. You got doctrinal. You got liturgical. And then from liturgical, so if that's like plane one, to get what's, what's plane two experiential? Does that make sense?
1: That's from, a good question. Now we're really moving into like my hunches and my guesses. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, this, is what I, this is what I want. So yeah. none of this, again, for a dear reader, none of this is a scientific analysis. <laughs> I <laughs> have to say this as someone—it's all experiential. It's all experiential. It's all experience- yeah, this is all just—I yeah. just feel like this is what happens. Um, no, I, you know, right. I suspect that this sort of thing. This is—I mean, this is what I'm gesturing at. I mean, I'm—I'm on I'm my own place in this progression, right? Um. But uh, what I'm gesturing at here perhaps can be encapsulated in the experience of the person who is, yes, they've had the experience. They've they've delved into doctrine. They have a strong liturgical identity and sense of belonging. And here's the thing. Remember earlier I said, you know, the kind of modern impulses that novelty gives way to ecstasy. They suddenly realize in liturgy that familiarity gives way to ecstasy too, right? Hmm. That you're, you're participating in the liturgical service. You're participating, you're, 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 doing the prayer of confession every Sunday. You're going through, you're, you're regularly practicing, um, the Lord's supper. You're an active participant in the baptisms in your church. And there's a thing that happens that's deeply experiential, but now it's, it's different than that individual, you know, I hit rock bottom and, and I found Jesus there. That, that that was your original conversion story. This is a new thing where you suddenly realize you're belonging to the body of Christ. You feel that shared DNA that we have in the spirit when Jesus says, let them be one like you and I are one. We, we you know, in the high priestly prayer of John 17, and we realize what it means to be partakers. You know, I tell our students this a lot. You know, we 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 glorify in the Trinity, and we also do have to remember that because of our union with Christ in the Spirit, we are partakers in the Trinity. Right? We're partakers in that communion, and I think that's an experience. That's a thing that comes often. Let me put it this way: I think that's that's a, that's a, re- a realization that often comes because of your um, true belief understanding of the depth of our belief through doctrine and participation in a liturgical community you can have you can kind of click back around right to experience again is what I mean but now it's a new and a deeper experience remember I'll get I, I don't know if this oh. is a cycle that goes on forever and ever you know but I, but I do I do think that there is a kind of um uh, yeah, there's a linear progression to all of this or a circular progression, as it were, you know, from one stage to the next. I remember I was uh, with,
0: I went to a uh, Anglican, um, I forget, I think it was leading up to Easter. Maybe it was a Good Friday service, something like that. And um, it was at a large cathedral. And and I, I'm I'm kind of a low church guy. I'm not, you know, I'm kind of like, oh, I don't know, it's a little much. But uh, I went with my wife, and and she came from an Anglican church, and uh, and I remember afterwards we were talking about it, and she was just like, "Wow, like it felt like," uh, and she she had gone to a, an Anglican church that was kind of lower church within the Anglican world, so this was kind of out of our element for both of us. But she was just like, "Man, it felt like we were part of something that has transcended the ages." Yeah, like like and and you wrote about the appeal of liturgy of of heritage, tradition, mm-hmm. of rootedness. And I was like, man, all those church history lectures I listened to and the books and the theology I knew that, that were sort of abstract in my head suddenly became very tangible. Right. You know, we're in this building and we're singing these songs and there's this sense of that this stuff preceded me and it, it's going to be there long after me. And it was, it was a, a sense of, a, I don't, I don't want to say transcendence. That sounds kind of yeah. kooky, but, but there was some sense of... The
1: communion uh, of saints.
0: Yeah. And I think that that's, when I talk to people who start to really like liturgy, a big part of it is a love for the church. I almost wonder Mm -hmm. if people start there, they go, oh, just being in the church doesn't make you a Christian, right? Right. It's about this experience, of personally knowing Christ. And then that happens. And then they kind of circle back and go, but the church isn't irrelevant. It's not just a garage for a car to sit in. It's actually a vital part of the Christian life. And I think that's the cyclical thing. Yeah.
1: and maybe it's cultural uh, you know my um, I just had lunch with an Indonesian friend. He was talking about some of the cultural um, assumptions in the West compared to in the church that he ministered in in Jakarta. You know it might be cultural, but 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 it, there is something about the need to have a personal experience that kind of invigorates and gives you this stamina. For the rest of the journey right So I think there's a reason why I experience is usually kind of the, the flame that lights the fire that continues yeah. on to burn um, that might be a cultural that might be a cultural thing though, though I, I suspect there's something more to it than that you know this is the regeneration right this is the, the regeneration of this of the of the person of the heart so that they can have true saving faith and, and and you have that and then that sort of invigorates you for the journey. Through experience, doctrine, and liturgy, um, but you know all of this kind of maps on to something that and a, a former uh, colleague of mine, uh, who's a professor down at RTS Orlando, John Frame, you know, in his tri-perspectival approach hmm. to you know first of all epistemology, and then later he kind of applied it much more broadly, but he really divides up these perspectives, right? On the world around us, into these three forms of subjective, you know, normative, and situational, right? And and he too would say there's not one that's better than the other. The subjective is is kind of rooted in the perspective of the individual. Uh, the normative is uh, sort of in terms of ethics, what we call deontological ethics. It's like the the law. It's the reason why you do the thing you do. Um, And then the situational is the way that you interact in context, whether that's spatial or temporal, the way you're interacting with others around you, you know, in in different situations. And, you know, this this experiential um, doctrinal liturgical division that I'm using really maps on well with his tri-perspectival approach of subjective, normative, and situational and the key being that these are all just different perspectives on in this case spiritual formation these are all different ways of engaging in spiritual you know spiritual formation what's interesting to me is that it, it does seem biographically and you know or rather autobiographically for my story and then for those around us that there is this kind of progression from one to the mm-hmm. next from subjective to normative to situational i actually checked this out with john frame and he he affirmed that he wrote this yeah, he, the frame he wrote of a, a, little, bl- a little blurb sort of, you know, responding to it um, and uh, and and said, yeah, he does think this maps on well with his tri approach. That wasn't my intention, but it's nice to see it work out with somebody you respect. <laughs>
0: there you go. Uh, you know, you mentioned it's been, it's 2016. So what is that? It's six years since you wrote this. And I'm wondering over the years... What, what have you noticed about maybe our little subsect of reformed evangelicalism? I, I, I've noticed within millennials as they've grown up, my generation, and they get married, they have kids, they start getting a little more established. There's been liturgy's cool now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people
1: are yep. trying to
0: be liturgical. What do you think is behind that?
1: So that's a really interesting question, and I, I've seen now a couple of phases. I've now been doing this work for a little—I've been involved in theological education for a little over 20 years now. And so that's, I guess, biblically speaking, that's about a generation, I guess. Um, I remember early on in that time, so in the early 2000s, there was a, a kind of return in PCA churches to liturgical worship. And for them, that often meant, I don't mean this pejoratively, but that often meant kind of just mimicking whatever was going on over in Anglican churches. You know, people were Mm -hmm. dressing like Anglican priests and that sort of thing, you know, wearing vestments and robes and everything. And um, there was either that or there was an attempt to do kind of like a sort of vaguely Celtic Scottish service of some kind. You know, um, I remember a church in Orlando, did something like that it it had a lot of candles and like dark lighting you know um so i mean i'm not i'm not saying this to make fun of them that that seemed like an early attempt like to say okay how do we think about liturgy more and it seems to me like that that desire is still there but people are getting a little bit more of a nuanced um way of engaging with that like realizing there actually is so again i'm in presbyterian churches so i'm speaking out of my context there is a Presbyterian liturgy of sorts. There's, there's, there's a way of doing worship and you can introduce non-spontaneous prayer into that, you know, like recitations of a confession of, you know, a, a prayer of confession. Mm. Um, you, can, you can introduce more liturgical elements in that where we are going through the same motions that starts with a call to worship and ends with a benediction. Every year, I mean, every every Sunday rather, and the church is doing this together liturgically, and they're realizing, you know, what there is a way to do this, and we don't have to just go copy some other tradition. I mean, with that said, again, I mean, I was raised in that Anglican tradition, so I love that liturgy. When I look back on it, I love the I love the Lord's Supper uh, liturgy in the Anglican tradition, which was actually sung in the one of the churches that I went to. So I've got it memorized as a song just because I heard it so many times as a kid, <laughs> and it's beautiful. Um yeah. we'll sometimes sing it to our daughters as uh, when I'm putting them to bed at night. We will sometimes sing some of those old liturgies. Um, but what you've seen now more recently, this is kind of the newer version of this discussion, is particularly in Presbyterian circles, but in broader evangelical circles too. So this isn't just in the Presbyterian church. There is there's a desire to... Um, Engage with different ethnic and cultural liturgies, right? That are coming in, particularly as the church becomes more international, more multi-ethnic, and there are more churches developing that are kind of ethnocentric. Um, there's an interest in thinking about, okay, so what does this kind of worship look like versus that kind of worship? You know, what are the liturgies that are we doing? Are we are we being you know, in this Presbyterian liturgy, are we being aware of the different people who are actually worshiping in the service? Are we being, you know, particularly for a multi-ethnic church, are we reflecting the worship of our congregations and thinking kind of deliberately about how we do that? And I actually think that's a very interesting and very important conversation. Like I think we need to be having that conversation. And that's going to be different for different churches in terms of how they they deal with that. That ultimately is a very liturgical question. That's not experiential, that's not doctrinal, that's about how we worship together as a people, and so I think we're seeing that happen. And that's to me more interesting than that earlier discussion of like, should we just import Anglican forms of worship or something like that, and just just yeah. to feel more liturgical?
0: Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think it, it's. Uh, I found that a lot of people who are sort of in my generation and, and like the, the like millennial world feel this restlessness and they just want to feel connected to something that feels like it has a lot of roots. That kind of transcends all the polarization people feel. And I think some of it's just kind of the aesthetic, you know, you might not, you know, but uh, I I also noticed from some of my friends, the first time they really start to think about baptism is when they have kids.
1: Yeah, They're like, what
0: do I think about baptism? And then their kids get older and like, how do I teach my kids the faith? Uh-huh. And then they start thinking about catechesis and they think about rhythms in their home and they think about how to create, you know, a, a household that that's ordered around the Lord. And so all these I wonder if it's just the natural phases of people growing up. That's right. that kind of prompts a lot of these new reflections and and uh
1: and you know, something that I That's that's a good point by the way. Yeah. So yeah. this liturgy outside of the worship service, which you know, people like uh you know James K Smith and his cultural yeah. liturgies work and you are what you love and everything they've kind of tapped into this in terms of us but it's a part of a broader movement that you're even seeing out there in kind of um you know ne- you know neuroscience circles where people are talking about the fact that it's not like you just think stuff and do it you know it's not just right, a cognitive right. straight line from cognitive to behavioral yeah. you know there's the, you know you can train your heart you can train your desires through action. And yeah, the Christian church has recognized this for a long time, we call them spiritual disciplines, right? <laughs> you know, right, we talk right. about daily readings and daily prayer and that this forms your thoughts and your hearts. And, and, and you know, it's interesting to see in this modern time that science is starting to you know affirm that for us too. You know, this idea that yeah, our, the, the, the actions, the repeated actions that we're doing and that we're choosing to spend our time and effort on and money oftentimes actually forms the things that you think and it forms the things that you desire. It's not just I think, going through the motions.
0: I think also people's discussions about social media, mm-hmm. how that's forming up, that kind of negative formation is prompting conversations about what po- positive formation is. I think yeah. broader in, in this, in, even in the non-Christian world, but I think even in a more pronounced sense with Christians thinking, Social media and the internet, it's just introduced that concept that we're shaped in so many ways we don't even realize. Yep. How can we counteract that with different kinds of formation?
1: Well, and uh, yeah, we, I was talking about this in a class that I have with um, with a group of students. And it's just because of the nature of this class, they're all students who are one year out of college. So they're thinking about a lot of these things right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're talking a lot about creating the habits. That will become the lifestyle that you'll benefit from in the years ahead. In terms of you know, spiritual disciplines, getting involved in a church, getting connected, but we were talking about these kind of unintentional, um, unintentional liturgies, you know, as it were, that we develop in our lives, you know. And one of them was this, you know, the fact that as we were sitting there talking around a table, everyone had their phones face down on the table, and yet every five minutes or so, somebody would reach over turn it around, look at the notification screen, put it back down again, you know?
0: Yeah, And they
1: do it without even thinking about it. Yeah, that's right. I do it too, you know? I didn't do that five years ago, but now that is a regular part of my life that, because of social media, because of constant connections between, you know, whether it's email, text, you name it, the thousand different platforms that I'm on just to communicate with people for work, you're constantly now doing this thing, doing this motion, you know, that uh, you didn't do before. And it's because I've trained myself to do it without even realizing it, right? I trained myself to act in this particular way. And, um, you know, look how easily that happens with something like a phone. You know, how, it's important for us to be deliberate in terms of how we're thinking about how our actions are forming our desires and our thought patterns. I almost think
0: too, like with the experiential, I I know people who grow up in, who grew up in charismatic circles and and a lot of times they burn out. They feel like, man, I can't feel myself. Oftentimes a trial happens and they go, I can't feel myself out. It's like, I can't experience my way out of it. And then doctrine comes in. But I think also even for, you know, reformed doctrine loving guys, you know, I'm one of them. You kind of go, I can't also, I can't think myself out of this either. Like you were saying, we don't just think and do like, you can't just think your way out of these things that you go through, whether you go through suffering or whatever. And I think liturgy comes in and it's kind of like, what if, what if you can just do these things and be formed in those ways as well? Right. And uh, I think that that, there's something powerful about that. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I also wonder too, if people, usually if you come from an experiential church, there's a very... You know, charismatic, engaging, pastor, or a doctrinal church. It's a doctrinal guy, and he's all this stuff. And I think there's something to liturgical, where I mean, it can always you can always make a cult to personality, but there's a sense in which it's not about the guy who's preaching. Yeah, it's about this whole thing everybody in the congregation is doing together right. as the church.
1: Isn't that? And don't you feel like that's that's a realization that I know when I had it. Um it was deeply freeing and it struck me as immediately true. And how did I miss it my whole life? But the church is not just about the pastor who's the head of it. Yeah. And I'm not choosing to be in his flock or not. Right. Which is kind of the way I thought about it before is that I'd go around, I'd find the church that has the pastor I like, who I identify with, who I feel is tolerable or nice or funny or smart or whatever, you know, he's embodying whatever this thing is that I want. And realizing that instead the church is the congregation, you know, and the, particularly in the reformed tradition, we really believe this. You know, the pastor is facilitating. He's a shepherd, but he's not like a higher up Christian or something like that, right? The pastor's not mm-hmm. identified as like a little closer to God or a little closer to the Mass right. or something like that than we are. Um, you know, he's really facilitating for the congregation, this thing that they are the body of the worship of Christ. And, um, you know, having that realization was incredibly freeing Hmm. and made me appreciate the church so much more and appreciate what's happening on Sunday morning so much more. Because I'm now no longer going in there as someone who's trying to get something sort of transactional, but I'm going in there because this is my family. These are my people. Like I have, you know, I've got this last name. And the last name is red, and there's a way in which, yeah. you uh the church too is kind of like that. The church is my last name. It's it's who I am. It's it's who I am. These are my people, you know. Uh, regardless of of you know whether or not I can relate to the guy up front who's preaching. Now, praise God, I can. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, but you know, that's, that's, that always helps. That's not what the church is primarily about. The ch- church is about us as a community coming together and participating in the means of grace, right? And yeah. So, it's a it's it's a beautiful thing, I think, and, and very freeing.
0: That was a, I remember learning about means of grace in seminary at RTS Orlando, and it really kind of opened my mind because it made me think that Christ being the shepherd is not a real thing and happening in real time. Like it's Christ actually ministering to me, right? If God is actually there, and it's through these means that He's given us that He's ministering to me, and that the all the ministers there, they're just serving in a capacity to bring the people to God Himself. Yep.
1: And, and that, was, that was pretty cool. You know, yeah, we're the yeah, right. of priests who are coming that's right. in there. Um, it's interesting how the priestly language in the New Testament is typically applied to every the common believer, right? The yeah. language of sacrifice of priest, if it's not Christ being our high priest, it's usually, you know, for instance, when uh you know Paul in Romans talks about presenting. Uh, a sacrifice of our bodies. Right? Yeah. You know, you, this idea of the priest is not this hierarchical position, but it's what right. every Christian is called to do in Christ. Right. We're in his priesthood, and so we are therefore offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. And, um, yeah, and it's just, it, 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 again, it's, it's actually a very exciting vision for what the church is uh, and what's happening when we gather together there. But, I, you know, you mentioned the history, too, and I do think there's something super important about that. In, in this modern phase, right, we're, we're, we emphasize, if, if anything, first of all, we emphasize our experience. Secondly, we emphasize, um, you know, rationality and doctrine and mm-hmm. logic, right? Mm-hmm. One thing we don't emphasize here in this modern condition that we're all in, this modern environment, so we don't emphasize the fact that God has been revealing Himself and the Spirit has been illuminating the text of Scripture to communities for thousands of years, right? right. And I and I think that's too, that that creates, you know, what I think it was it was Lewis who talked about chronological snobbery. Yeah, I think, yeah. So, I think it was yeah. C.S. Lewis. It creates that. It also creates this sense of like I don't have anything. There's no one that I that that can help me from the past. I need to only go to modern day interpreters. Right to understand what the Bible's about. And, and you're cutting off this whole cloud of witnesses that can help you in understanding your Christian experience, your Christian life. And I think there's a thirst, even though many people don't know it, there's a thirst to be rooted again in you know, the, 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 the witness of the Christian church and to, and to feel like, as you said earlier, being a part of the communion of saints in your worship. Uh, you know the spontaneous and the new, as beautiful as it might be, and as powerful as like a you know there's some really wonderfully modern songs that are written in for for worship, uh, as beautiful and as effective as they might be. There's also something to to reciting or singing the doxology, for instance. I love singing yeah. the doxology, just because you're you're you really are engaging with this historical past that we have as a people. These are your people, right? From all over the world, these are your people singing this hymn for thousands of years, and that's a beautiful thing. Like, and I think that's something people are hungering for, and they may not even have the words or the language for it, you know. But you, you find that as you kind of stumble into that liturgical mode, I think you realize, wait a minute, uh, the church didn't just get created last Tuesday. You know, it's been around yeah. for a while, and we've got all these resources that we can draw from.
0: And at its best,
1: it reinforces those other
0: phases. I think that's the. Yeah. What's really helpful with your article is it, it gives honor to all of these things and says that they all actually complement each other. I think, a temp- I think a temptation is once you become in your doctrinal phase, you look back and you roll your eyes experience. And then you're liturgical and you're like, I remember when I was yep, a yeah, stage <laughs> Calvinist. Or, you know, or, or you're experiential, like I remember the dead orthodoxy. And instead of looking back with an eye roll, I think it shows actually these things help each other. Yep. And it can help, you know, it helps you read more widely and I think it gives you a, a, a more sense of charity and, and appreciation for all the phases.
1: It's absolutely. And oftentimes I think a church, and another way this can work out is that it, the pastor is often going through these phases too. I was just going <laughs> to ask you about that. <laughs> and, and the pastor can take his whole congregation and force them to go along his spir- spiritual journey with them. Yeah. And that's why you you want to have a church that has multiple voices involved in it. I mean, I'm, I'm a yeah. key proponent of the plurality of elders for that yeah. reason. Um But also, I mean, I think this should guide us in that we should think about how are we developing our church that's feeding our members who are in that experiential mode? How are we doing church? You know, Sorry to say it that way. How are we worshiping and leading the church in a way that is feeding those who are in the doctrinal mode? How are we feeding people who are in that liturgical mode, want to be a part of a worshiping community and really amplify that belonging? That happens there and how do you do it in a way that's faithful to your tradition because i do think baptists can do this and i think presbyterians Mm -hmm. can do it and i think anglicans can do it you know i think we can all do it together um so how do how are we doing that in a way that's faithful to our tradition faithful to our confession and we've got those tools in our tool belt but i think oftentimes we're just going with whatever the pastor wherever he is in his phase in life you know and uh, and that's why it benefits us. to kind of use these. These can be used as diagnostics. At least one set of diagnostics, and thinking about okay, are we doing? Are, are, are we doing worship? Or are we leading the church in a way that actually serves people at different places in their spiritual walk? That's a good way to put it.
0: Um, and it was funny when you were saying the, the pastor himself might be going through things. I, I think about that because I'm like, man, I'm, I'm developing all these thoughts. And yeah. I remember I was at a uh, some of our friends they were baptizing their daughter and uh there the, there was an Anglican priest there but he grew up the son of a Baptist preacher He grew up Baptist and it was funny when he was explaining the baptism to everybody's like now this doesn't save you you yeah. know you you have to believe this is just a promise mm-hmm. society <laughs> and i'm like the baptist genes are strong you know yeah, they don't yeah, they don't die easy
1: <laughs> Well, every a, good Presbyterian was once a Baptist. You know. There you go. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. That's how you know they're really a believer. You um, know. <laughs> <laughs> you know. You're right. And and I've seen this happen in other ways too. You know, they're often on that journey, and they're they're influenced yeah. by what came before. And I've seen pastors show up and start wearing a priestly collar. You know, yeah. all of a sudden, and not warn their congregation that they were going to do that, and the congregation gets all sort of you know, bothered about that and people wrestle with it. And I'm not saying, uh, you know, I, 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 there's, there's actually a Presbyterian context for wearing or history to wearing collars. If you actually go back and look at the old pictures of uh, Charles Hodge, he's that, Mm. that scarf wrapped tightly around his neck is his clerical collar, you know? Oh, really? So it's not, um, it's, it's not something that's unheard of in the tradition and yet, as you're going through this journey, particularly as the pastor, you do have a undue influence in the congregation. And you want to think about, okay, yeah. am I just jerking them along right. on every little thing that I'm, the new revelations I'm having in my life? And, uh, or am I really being a faithful shepherd of the congregation? I think that's why it's important to have elders who are a part of this conversation and to be asking yourself, okay, even though I'm really being fed by liturgy right now, am I making sure that people are getting opportunity to, yeah, have a, you know, have real personal individual experiences in this church. You know, am I giving them opportunity from that? Am I encouraging that at least in my language and the way that we talk about the Christian faith?
0: Those are some great thoughts. And I, I appreciate you so much for coming on and talking about this. And uh, you thank
1: know, you. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, this is a
0: great conversation. I'm going to link your article uh, in the show notes And uh, so people can uh, enjoy that. But uh, yeah, this was great. I hope everyone listening appreciated uh, these thoughts and enjoyed it. Make sure you leave a review, share with your friends. And uh, Dr. Red, we're grateful for you. And hopefully we can have you on again sometime. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it.